thanks for coming on. I know we haven't met before, but I'm actually very familiar with your work. Um, going back to your book on Section 230, which I've always thought is like the reference book on that very important law. And then I saw recently published another book, which I which I finished last night and very much enjoyed and hope to talk about. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So let me you know what? Let me I had some notes on your book. As you can tell, I'm slightly unprepared. There was so much news today. The Elon news. Really? I, I, I didn't hear it. <laughs> exactly. What what happened today? <laughs> um, you know what? Let me. Uh, damn it. Why is my Kindle section so strange? Um, hold on. I'm, gonna, I'm grabbing my iPad. But yeah. So, well, you know what? Let's just let's just get the elephant in the room out of the way. What, what do you make of the Elon news? So I am not a securities lawyer, so I have no idea about what the reality is of this actually happening. Um, I do think that the issues are incredibly complex, and I would not want to be in the position of owning Twitter in any capacity. So uh, more power to him if he wants to try it out. <laughs> but I, I, I don't think what I've been asked actually quite a bit recently about today about Section 230 and how that impacts it. And I, I don't think it necessarily is going to move the needle much on the 230 debate, but it definitely, I think, at the very least, will uh, draw a lot more attention to the role that the platforms have in moderation, uh, what they can do, what they can't do, and the challenges of it. So, you know, you know, we're, you're definitely deep in that policy debate, and I'm residually in it. Can you maybe, in, in your words, um, I think your, your first book was called, is it the, the 23 words? Or maybe the 26. numbers were 26 words to change the internet. Can you maybe just for everyone else, I, the pull request audience is typically pretty savvy, but just to, can you maybe describe what, what Section 230 is? In just yeah, so, so the really brief version is what Section 230 basically says is that Platforms are not liable for content that users post, uh, that you can sue the user who's posted it or created it, but third-party content is not going to be the legal responsibility of the platform where it's posted. And it has allowed companies to both have very open platforms for users as well as uh, decide, you know, we're not going to post very much content and everything in between. And so a lot, all the different business models out there, the biggest platforms really owe their existence to Section 230. Right. I mean, you know, the, the really short version of it, to my understanding, and, you, and you'll probably quibble with it rightly, is just like end of the day, a YouTuber Twitter is a platform and not a publisher, and they're ultimately not responsible for what's on their platform. That doesn't mean, of course, that they can't pull things down. Of course they do. But at the end of the day, you know, if if you tell if YouTube is posting copyrighted content, it's kind of not YouTube's fault. It's whoever posted it. I mean, is that a correct, very layman's explanation? Well, so of no, there are a few. First, there's not a publisher platform distinction in 230. Uh, the entire purpose of 230 was because there was starting to become that under sort of the law before the Section 230 was passed. And what Congress wanted to do was basically say, regardless of whether you moderate or how you moderate you won't have liability for that content. So um, it's really not, I mean, the, the point of 230 is to say, you know, yeah, if you want to do no moderation at all, try it out. But we also don't want to discourage you 
from moderating content. Now, the other thing with copyright, uh, cop intellectual property has always been explicitly excluded from 230. Uh, there's a whole other regime under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that will probably put people to sleep if I start talking about that. But uh, copyright is not a Section 230 issue. But it's it's definitely one of those issues, kind of like net neutrality, where people and and to be honest, we're in such deep innings. I feel like we're in like season ten of the show, and I, I only read up to season two and got bored and stopped. <laughs> and like I miss in between because things have gotten such a point, and I kind of missed it. But but I, my feeling is that like the thoughts around section two thirty are kind of like the thoughts back in the day around net neutrality. That if we got rid of it, like it would just kill this golden goose, and it would be horrifying. Or or is that is that a very season two point of view? And in fact, I'm so behind that. The, the, the debate has moved elsewhere. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that it's different than net neutrality. I, I, I think in terms of uh, the really immediate potential impact it can have on platforms. And we saw this a few years ago uh, when Congress passed a law called FOSTA, which was the first ever sort of amendment to 230 that excluded certain uh, types of claims related to sex trafficking and prostitution. And what you saw was the impact on users because you had Craigslist almost immediately get rid of its personal ad section. And they said, you know, we just don't want to take the risk of this increased liability because platforms ultimately are businesses. Uh, they cannot talk all about their ideals and their visions for society, but ultimately they have to stay in business. They have lawyers. I'm a lawyer and I know lawyers are really risk averse. And if you suddenly say, we're going to expose you to a whole lot more litigation, um, then you're going to say, okay, well, perhaps we're not going to allow this content uh, on our site at all, when before we would have at least, um, you know, set our own policies outside of the law. Right, right. Yeah. It's funny, I, I'm in a group with a bunch of uh, like policy wonks, because you know, I, I'm at the Lincoln Network, which I assume you're familiar with. It's mm -hmm. it's it's an organization that tries to basically merge like actual tech practice with DC policy and, and try to make the regulation a little bit less. I'm trying to be polite about it. Um, a little <laughs> a little smarter, a little more enlightened, a little bit more pro business. Um, and so I've been on some of the conversations. And anyhow, people there, they're like. You know, it's like I'm like a casual reader of the Harry Potter series and they're like the crazy person who's living who are living inside a, a Harry Potter themed house. And you've kind of and they're off in like a non canonical universe. They, they've left the farm. And so I often yeah. feel a little bit out of it. I don't know how do you do you feel that way? Are you I just, as a person? Are you tired of talking about Section 230 or is it something you feel engaged with? Because because your latest book is not about it. Your, your latest book, which I think is a fascinating topic and we're going to get to is, is not about Section 230. Yeah, no, I. I I'm tired of some of the discussion around 230 that's based on sort of really fundamental misunderstandings of how the law works and what it does and what it can do. Uh, but I, I mean, I think that it's something that we probably should have been talking about for a long time and we've kind of put it off and now we have this sort of chaos of just nonsense. <laughs> and uh, so, so I, I wish we'd been talking about it earlier. But yeah, I mean, I, I think... Uh, there are, I mean, the book I'm actually, I'm actually currently writing another book, which is all about the First Amendment protections for false speech, which actually are a lot of the things that people want to address with Section 230 reform, but they're not able to because the First Amendment protects so much stuff. <laughs> and I think that's, that's often what's missing in the Section 230 debate is you could get rid of Section 230 altogether, but at least for now, we still have the First Amendment. 
<laughs> right. Uh, and that and that's going to prevent a lot of really what both sides of the debate want to do. Yeah, I mean, and 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 by the way, that that First Amendment argumentation. It, one of the things that surprised me about your book, obviously not actually being a lawyer, was that so, so much of your argumentation in the anonymity and privacy space comes from kind of the First Amendment rather than the Fourth, <laughs> right? In terms yeah. of ensuring free speech. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean that that really. Um, Anonymity really is both a privacy and a free speech issue. And in other countries, uh, in other jurisdictions, so Europe and the UK and Canada, they very much view the ability to be anonymous as a privacy issue, which they can actually do much more easily because in Europe, for example, privacy is a fundamental human right. Uh, That's certainly not the case in the United States. Uh, We have very relatively limited privacy protections constitutionally. Um, So, but what we do have is some pretty extraordinary speech protections that you don't have in many other parts, even Western democracies. So, I mean, that, that's really where our, at least when it comes to civil liberties, our advantages come from our free speech protections rather than privacy. You know, it's funny, privacy. So I, I thought a lot about privacy and I've written about it in the past because I think it's such a fascinating thing. Um, you know, I think one of those things that people seem to not realize about privacy is how recent a concept it is legally, right? At least in, in the mm. U.S. world, right? I mean, Louis Brandeis, a future SCOTUS uh, justice, basically invented it in 1890 with what's still a very readable uh, treatise called The Right to Privacy. Um, yep. And he, the backstory to it was, as I'm sure you know, his partner was a socialite. I think he had married the daughter of the Delaware senator or something. And two technological advancements had happened right around then. One, um, Kodak shipped its brownie camera, which suddenly made photography portable and cheap. And two, we had the telegraph, which meant that stories would suddenly fly as fast as the wind (laughs) to all four corners of the earth. Very similar to smartphones, which suddenly share photographic stuff a lot faster, which I think is why we're all talking about privacy a lot more. But, um, you know, this notion of living, the right to live anonymously in an anonymous society, um, not not to undermine the thought that we should have that notion now, but it's a relatively recent thing, right? Like, you, you know, the... The Bible and the Code of Hammurabi do not have privacy sections in them in which they discuss this fundamental right. It, it is kind of a product of the modern age. Maybe you disagree with that. Maybe you think it's actually implicit in the law going further back than what I'm describing. Well, so it's not necessarily implicit in the law. It's implicit in the, at least when it comes to anonymity, which is kind of distinct from privacy because anonymity is really about the identifying information rather than the underlying content of the personal data. But I mean, anonymity has gone back to the founding of our country. Uh, I I mean, it hasn't been legally protected, but there's a lot of speech that at least initially wasn't legally protected because we really have um, uh, the, the modern concept of free speech under the First Amendment really emerged in uh, right around the 1919, 1920s, the whole marketplace of ideas. I mean, you mentioned Brandeis. Um, and I mean, he, he, along with Oliver Wendell Holmes, they really throughout the 1920s developed really the theory of free speech that underlies so many of our protections. I mean, he has, um, my, my favorite quote of a first amendment opinion, uh, it was from 1927. He, Brandeis wrote fear of serious injury cannot alone justify suppression of free speech and assembly. 
men feared witches and burned women. It is the function of speech to free men from the bondage of irrational fears. I mean, that is like that. That's coming from the guy who 30, 40 years ago had been saying, hey, let's basically restrict the ability of the press to be able to report on someone's wedding. And now he's saying, like, he's making this really powerful argument. So, I mean, so so the anonymity rights really legally came from that, but they're based on the ability to be able to communicate often unpopular ideas under pseudonyms. So you had Thomas Paine distributing common sense and it was signed written by an Englishman. You had uh, the, the Federalist Papers where Madison, Hamilton, and Jay signed it as Publius. Um, and there are different reasons. I mean, Madison and Hamilton and Jay, they're, they're not going to, they, at the time when they were arguing for the ratification of the Constitution, they were not in any danger of um, any physical danger uh, from doing it. I mean, Hamilton, I guess, <laughs> eventually it was, but that's a different story. But, um, but, but they really wanted their message to be separated from their identities. And what the courts did sort of after the Holmes and Brandeis uh, really broad marketplace free speech protections, what the courts did was they said, okay, we're going to look at this history of anonymous speech, and we think it is inherent in the ability to to say, you know, you know, Congress won't abridge the freedom of speech or press, that because of this history that we have going back to our founding, that one of the protections is for being able to speak anonymously. Now, it's not absolute, but it, but but the court has, uh, and I'll say it's justices from all sides of the political spectrum have recognized this. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Clarence Thomas, who actually is probably the most ardent defender of anonymous speech who's ever been on the court. So uh, I I find that really fascinating as well, that it's not really a left-right political issue. Right. I mean, just as not to put too fine a point on it, but you're citing, you know, if you look at the history of privacy, almost the entirety of free speech, the, well, not all of free speech, but almost the entirety of the case law is from like the 20th century, right? Or it's yeah. post 1890. So again, to my point about it being a relatively modern invention, it's, it's one of these things that we're still kind of working out in a way that like basic ownership or, you know, other fundamental rights we've, we've kind of, We've mostly kind of, okay, we're kind of, we kind of solved that issue. But so what, one thing you're hinting at, though, which I think is really interesting, you actually open your book, and, and now I'm talking about um, the book that you just published called United States of Anonymity, which I, I very much recommend. It's a very scholarly look at everything you're describing. You know, you open it up, and, and it's funny, I wrote a piece at, um, at Wired kind of about this as well, that the founding fathers would have been like a non-account shit posters on Twitter almost without any question, right? Ben Franklin wrote under like something like 20 pseudonyms. I mean, you mentioned Hamilton. He ended up getting shot because I believe yeah. he wrote an anonymous letter disparaging, you know, Aaron Burr's character. They were all writing under countless pseudonyms and tweaking each other's noses constantly in a way that, I mean, we would recognize, but we would consider to be pathological when in fact our democracy was founded in like conditions that were arguably even worse than Twitter now. Um, so I, do you want to comment on that? Because, again, you seem to think that that history was very, was very critical to the, to the anonymity discussion. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think absolutely. I mean, I start the book with uh, Junius, who right. basically was one of the 
most persistent critics of King George III. He, his criticism was one of the main factors that led to the downfall of the prime minister. Uh, and I mean, he took all of these operational steps to hide his identity. He had people copy his ha- his letters before they were dropped off at different drop-off points. So the newspaper that was publishing it wouldn't know, even be able to identify him. And there was some speculation about who it is, but even to this day, there is not a consensus as to who Junius was. And I mean, I, I think of him as sort of the OG troll. I mean, he, like the stuff he wrote was, I, at first it was incredibly well written. It, like you, you don't see writing like that anymore, just in terms of how sharp it is, the economy of his writing. And uh, so, so it's, it's like Twitter, but way more clever. And, uh, but, but he had a lot of good reasons to not really troll the king um, under his real name. So he, he took all of these steps. And I mean, modern, in modern times, we have a lot of different reasons and trolling is just one of them. But I mean, there's a lot of really legitimate reasons why people need to operate under pseudonyms when they're online. Right. And you explore one of them. Um, it, Remind me, it wasn't like the shitty media men list, but it was the equivalent of that. Like one of these like Google Docs that alleges, you know, allegations that haven't been through any judicial process. And it's kind of the Me Too thing. But, you know, the idea you explore a lot. In fact, I think you actually contacted the owners of the list because they were anonymous and the accusers were anonymous. And there's this whole discussion there about the necessary anonymity of the accusations. But, um you know, although in courts of law in general, you can't make anonymous accusations for good reason, right? Because you kind of have to put your, <laughs> you have to kind of put your face behind the accusation. So, um, but yeah, and, and then of course the counter argument, right? You also cite, and I thought it was interesting you did that at Facebook. I, I worked at Facebook back at the time and I, I remember Zuck defending this in more than one comment internally. There's a reason for a, a real name policy, right? Like if, once again, if you if you actually have to put your real name to it, you're you know, and you're and you're answerable to what you say. Well, you, you behave like a normal human, right? Well, if you're like an anon person on some forum, well, the worst aspects of human character come out, <laughs> and it all becomes kind of a shitty experience. So I'm curious. Yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah. So I mean, there, I I don't think that's a frivolous argument, and I think that there, I I, I think that there's some truth to it but i don't think it's uh i don't think it considers nearly all of the different issues that are at stake and i think it's kind of short-sighted so i i mean i'll, I'll look at both the costs and benefits so i mean if, if you're looking first at the benefits it is you know that if there's some authenticity or people are willing to sort of stand behind their comments because their real names are associated with it um, does that necessarily lead to more civility? Now, logically, you might think yes. But, I mean, first, I think based on people's experiences, I mean, I barely use Facebook anymore because people are such jerks on it, and I don't see um, their real I, – I, I don't necessarily see their real names as being a barrier to that. I'm on my neighborhood's next door, and I will say that definitely does not <laughs> uh, prevent people from being jerks. Um, but – I, I think it also, and there has been some research that I said in the book where they find that people are actually more aggressive online when they're using their real names. Um, I think it also really um, minimizes the different interests in why people would be anonymous or pseudonymous. 
Um, there, there are a lot, I mean, I'm, I'm a tenured professor. I can be operate under my real name and say all sorts of stuff and I'll, I'll be fine. But there's a lot of people who either for employment reasons, personal reasons, uh, they can't speak under their real names and they're not looking to do anything nefarious. It's, uh, I mean, the, one of the, one of the biggest battlegrounds legal legally is people criticizing their employers. I mean, that's by far the most common type of court case involving this. And I mean, there's a good reason why you're not going to sort of put your name to a post saying that the CEO is managing the company into the ground or exploiting workers. So I, I think that um, I, I understand why Zuckerberg's philosophy is like that, but I don't know uh, if it's effective. And I also think, frankly, you look at how Facebook has been misused over the past five or six years and at least, and I don't, I, I mean, the, the the bad guys are going to keep doing bad stuff. And, uh, the it, it's good. You, you can set these policies and people will abide by them. But I think the people who are abiding by them are not necessarily the people who we're concerned about. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, again, you, you pick out so many exa- interesting examples from history that I, I, I'd either never knew about or forgot about, um, despite having been like 20 years in tech and read you know, a lot of books about tech. You cite the example, I guess, early on of like Yahoo forums and the example you cite, which is, you know, equity, you know, these sort of stock hobby group type things where they sit there and discuss a company and then some kind of disgruntled employee under an anonymous account will come and potentially spill what seems to be confidential information. And then suddenly the the company is pressuring Yahoo to reveal who it is, right? And that's a very common, seems to be like a very common situation where a lot of this law got figured out. Yeah, I mean, the Yahoo Finance, which, I mean, I, I, I was a business reporter sort of right at the bust of the dot-com boom. So I, so I very much remember Yahoo Finance. And it was a great place as a business reporter to get information because you basically, it was just filled with disgruntled employees who had what I, what I routinely found was very accurate information. But it really, and th- this really came through to me, I was um, I, I interviewed for the book Megan Gray, who is an attorney, a longtime uh, internet attorney, who was really the first attorney to represent people who were being sued, uh, not who operated anonymously on these Yahoo forums, and they would get sued by usually their employers, and they um, they their employers would not didn't know who it was, so they'd issue a subpoena. And they, they didn't actually, the employers didn't really want to uh, actually collect money from these employees. They wanted to figure out who it was and fire them and then make it difficult for them to ever get a job again because they had the nerve to actually criticize executives. And I, so I asked Megan, I said, you know, why, to me at least, this, this seems pretty tame, like what these lawsuits were about. And I mean, what she, she pointed out that, you know, until that point, until, like until the late 90s when Yahoo Finance emerged, the only criticism that these executives ever got was in the media. And they knew how to deal with that because they knew who to complain to. And the idea that some lowly employee could actually have the nerve to go on the Internet and tell the world about their ineptitude got under their skin. 
and they did not, it was really a reversal of the entire power dynamic. So they would file these bogus lawsuits alleging defamation when almost always it's not defamatory. And uh, the courts at first were rubber stamping these subpoenas and, let, and letting them do it because Yahoo wasn't notifying people that their information was being subpoenaed. Uh, fortunately, there were some uh, some civil liberties and privacy groups that pressured Yahoo to notify people, and then they started representing people who were challenging the subpoenas. And we eventually got, based in the First Amendment, a fairly high standard that courts apply to these subpoenas, where they basically say, you know, sometimes we will allow the subpoenas, but you have to have a really darn strong case to unmask someone because the First Amendment protects this ability to be anonymous. Right. And then, you know, it's funny, some, some of the, I mean, obviously it's very relevant, but a lot of the conversation or, you know, seems a little dated in that now you have an app called Blind, which you're probably familiar with, right? Do you know? Yeah, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which for, for those who aren't, it's kind of like secret back in the day, which I used to use a lot. It's basically an anonymous social networking, but in the blind case, it's in the corporate plane, you sign up with an actual corporate email. So people know that you actually work for Apple, Facebook, Amazon, whatever. And then, you know, it's people talking shit about their companies basically is what it is. And, you know, it's like, it's like literally that one guy in Yahoo Finance talking shit about their company. Now just imagine everybody from <laughs> talking shit about that company in one room. Um, and I mean, this, I, I assume at this point, the legal precedent is such that whatever, you can do nothing about this. And there's not even the thought that they would shut this down. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that there the the precedent is pretty strong. Uh, now I'll say that obviously I don't even know if Yahoo Finance still has bulletin boards. Any, I, I I don't know if they still. Ex I think they exist because I spoke with a reporter recently from there. But um, they but the big battleground now is Glassdoor, um, and Glassdoor to their credit, they because I mean Glassdoor they're filled with all of these reviews, and I mean it makes a big difference. Uh, for job applicants, they all look at the Glassdoor reviews and Glassdoor gets subpoenaed all the time. And to Glassdoor's credit, they actually proactively challenge these subpoenas, um, which for a company their size, it's a big company, but it's not huge. Uh, that's actually a pretty big cost for them to do. But they recognize that if they have the reputation of basically compromising their users anonymity, they're not going to get this content anymore. And that's basically their product. Right. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I won't name the company, but in, in the history of my employment, there was battles with Glassdoor because often, it, you know, it, you know, it, it, it does become basically a mouthpiece for like the one disgruntled employee, which is mm -hmm. unfortunate. And then, of course, companies, you know, have to counteract by asking their employees to go leave positive reviews, which sounds a little shady. But again, you know, it's kind of like Yelp reviews. It always biases to the negative because it's always like the pissed off person who's going to go and bitch about it. And so there's like yeah. a baked in like discount on what like what is normal. And so companies have to do that to employees. But um, on the other hand, you know, like at this company, I'd read some of the negative reviews and it's like, yeah, this shouldn't this shouldn't be the total description of the company. That said, it's it's not wrong. right? <laughs> it's yeah. not totally inaccurate. Um so I, yeah, it seems like a very hard thing to to figure out the the ideal you know trade off for. Yeah, it is, and I mean, I I think that there's also the and you've kind of seen courts even recognize this that um, people the you have to look at the recipients of the information as well, and they might not give as much credibility to 
anonymous comments as they would to comments that people sign because they might think, you know, maybe it's a competitor. Uh, and you see this on Yelp also that, I mean, sometimes there and there are accusations, you know, hey, even though it violates Yelp's policies that, you know, hey, we, this looks like an odd comment that probably that it looks like it might know a little too much about the business <laughs> to be coming from a random customer. So I, I think that, that that we kind of factor that in, or at least hopefully we do, and we don't give too much credibility to one anonymous comment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it kind of gets back a little bit to the age-old quote-unquote content moderation debate that we've been having about Facebook and everything else for four years, which is like, you know, it, no one is actually, and, and back when I used to scream about this, people would sort of pigeonhole me as a free speech absolutist when I'm, I'm really not, right? Because like I used to work on one of the content moderation teams at Facebook. So I understand that to actually run a real world network, some, something, you know, something above the Brandenburg v. Ohio standard of like actual violent hate speech, right, needs to exist because, you know, like no one wants to see dick pics and decapitation videos in their feed. Like, let's just face it, right? 99% yeah. of, of users don't want porn and like extreme violent video in their feed, right? Like 99% of people don't want to see it. And then guess what? It's actually pretty easy to determine what is porn, right? Like, you know, when you see it or what is hyperviolent video. So it's everyone wants it and it's easy to figure out what it is. You just have to scale the operational problem. So like that, that to me seems very uncontroversial, but there's like a tweet that, Everyone is dunking on, including myself, and I tend not to quote tweet dunk because I think it's a little bit below the belt. But I mean, this was so dumb that whatever. Uh, there's a tweet by Max Boot who you know says, "In order to save democracy, we need more content moderation," <laughs> and it was just such a howler because. Again, let's face it, content moderation, it sounds nice, but it's an Orwellian euphemism. It really means censorship, which, you know, to be clear, we've had censors in the past. New Zealand has an official chief censor position. Like, if you want censorship, I, I think, okay, again, it's not a crazy position to take, but you should just say it. Like, we should go, go back to an era where there is gatekeepers and, you know, we're prudes about things and certain books are just banned or certain tweets are just banned. Um, so... Well, hello. On the content moderation thing. Hello? Yeah, hey, sorry. I, I literally got a phone call, which unfortunately oh, you, okay. you overheard my iPhone ringing. But yeah, I'm just curious what you think about that sort of content moderation position that we need beyond, obviously we need beyond Brandenburg v. Ohio and you know, imminent lawless action. Obviously we need to stand beyond that. We need beyond porn and crazy violence. Do you think well, we need much more beyond that? Or, or I don't know, what are your thoughts there? Well, so th this actually gets to the, uh, the topic of the book I'm currently writing, <laughs> which is about, and it's focused on particularly misinformation and um, what, what is misinformation and why the, why the courts historically since the beginning of our country have protected a great deal of false speech. Not all of it, but we, I, I, I argue that we need to maintain that uh, in part because determining at a particular point what is demonstrably false. Sometimes it's easy, uh, like Pizzagate, don't have much of a problem with saying that's <laughs> false information. Um, the Hunter Biden laptop story, uh, I think that's a closer call. And if we had the government stepping in and saying, you cannot link to that, 
that that's where the First Amendment issues come in. And that that's what concerns me, because we have had proposals at both the federal and state level in the past few years that say that allow the government to define what misinformation is and impose certain consequences, both on the speakers and on platforms. That concerns me greatly. Um, I do not, I, I think I differ with you when it comes to what the platforms can do, providing they're not jawboned by the government. Uh, I think platforms can and should be free to set their own standards. Uh, I mean, if, if a platform were to say, you know, we don't, uh, we don't want to have any content talking about the election, or we only want to have certain types of content. Um, that, I mean, that, that's that's concerning. And I mean, I think the platforms in certain areas did react badly. I, I think, for example, the Hunter Biden laptop story, I, I don't think that was, um, cor- I don't think the platforms correctly reacted to it. However, they have the ability to do that. I, I am in the I am a firm believer still in the ability of private companies to set these policies and not be compelled to carry other people's speech. Uh, now, obviously, the counter argument to that is, you know, that this shuts people, shuts out certain voices. And I totally get that. Um, I, but I, I also think that, you know, compared to before the Internet, <laughs> there are many more avenues uh, for speech overall. So I, I don't know we've ever had, there's this idea that we have had once had this ideal public square that everyone had an equal voice. And I wish that was true, but I, I think that's not really the case. And I think that there's also, uh, there are legitimate safety reasons and legitimate business reasons for platforms to be able to say, you know, we are going to, allow this sort of content and we're, or we're not. And I mean, hopefully the market will, will respond uh, if they're making bad decisions. Uh, I, I think obviously there are some drawbacks to that because of network effects and the size of some of the companies. But I don't, I, I, I'm, so I'm, the bottom line is I'm very concerned both about the government having a ministry of truth. They're telling people or platforms, what they can and can't say, or even pressuring them. I'm also concerned about the government telling companies that they have to carry certain speech. That worries me greatly. Yeah. I mean, so a couple comments there. I, I mean, one thing, you know, you cite examples like Pizzagate, which obviously seems fantastical, but, the, and, but then you also cite the example of the Hunter Biden story, or I, I would even throw in also like the early COVID coverage, which I think yeah, it's one absolutely. of the, it's one, it's one of those things that like the tech bros got right, actually. And most of like, at the t- but if you went back, like I remember this because one of my friends, Balaji, who's been on the show several times, was one of the early alarmists about it. It was considered on par with QAnon, his theories about COVID. And it turns out he was right and everybody else was wrong. Right. And, and, and that's my problem that at some point, like epistemologically, you, you don't have an oracle of truth that just tells you what seems correct or not at, at any given moment. And it seems as if almost like in a criminal prosecution, if you've got like a tweet in the docket, you like there's a burden of proof to show that this will actually produce harm, not, oh, we think it's wrong according to some view of the world. Right. That's where that's where I think it gets a little bit hard. It gets a little bit hard in practice to actually 
implement, right? And, that, and that's why I think free speech, like free speech is also the right to be fucking stupid, right? In my opinion, and believe stupid things. Like I, I don't see why it doesn't include that. Well, it, it absolutely is. Um, it's also, I, I mean, uh, what I actually have a quote above my uh, computer from uh, from Harry Calvin, who was a First Amendment scholar throughout the mid 20th century. And he's, he says that the First Amendment is not the theory that all ideas and positions are entitled to flourish under freedom of discussion. It is rather that they must survive and endure against hostile criticism. So I, I think that that, I mean, that really sticks with me because I, I do as much as possible. I think that people's views should be heard. I do not think that people should have the right or ever have had the right to force a private company to publicly distribute their views. I mean, I would love to get op-eds in the New York Times. Uh, they never <laughs> have given me that opportunity. Oh, come on, Jeff. You're, you're an eminent scholar. I'm sure you could. Yeah. I, know, I know some editors there. We can work on this. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yes, <laughs> but, but I, I, I mean, I think, I think the counterargument is, and this is where Section 230 gets brought in, is, you know, and it's it's an understandable criticism that, you know, why do these platforms get these pretty extraordinary protections under Section 230 when they have really crappy moderation policies that discriminate against certain viewpoints? That is a legitimate concern. I And a really, I, I mean, logically, it's like, okay, well, why, why are we doing this? And I think that a response would be, well, if you get rid of 230, those avenues are going to go down even further. Uh, you're not going to suddenly open it. Like if there is a lot more liability, the companies aren't going to say, okay, let's just open up our platforms to everyone uh, that they're going to say, Hey, we're, we're, this is now getting really risky. And if it's a story that's not sourced, we, we don't want to defend a defamation lawsuit. So that's where it's like really tricky. But I mean, ultimately I, I, I wish I, there, there's not, an easy answer to a lot of this. I, I meet with um, I meet with any Hill staffer, a member of Congress who wants to talk about these issues, and I'd say I meet equally with Republicans and Democrats. And I will say that the conversations that I have are so far apart in terms of what the vision of the internet and platforms are. Uh, people keep saying, you know, what's your proposal for Section 230 reform? Or and like, well. I, I'd like to know what we have agreed the problem is first, right? Because that it, it's, I mean, the, the, I, there, there are a lot of people who think the platforms need to do far more to block anything that is deemed mis, that, that might be misinformation. And I have real problems with that because again, I think the COVID and in my book, I go through some pretty horrible examples of where information was immediately branded as uh, as misinformation and not allowed not allowed to be on the platforms. But it's different. Again, I, I just think it's very different. I mean, just from a legal First Amendment perspective, it's different when you have the government doing it versus uh, versus a company. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because like 
the like instantaneous reply guy rebuttal you get whenever like back in the day when I used to chime in on this when I was so deluded to think I could move the needle was like well you know it doesn't apply to private companies it only applies to public companies but that, I think that's a total and I, I hope you don't take this personally I think it's a total cop out because like wh why wouldn't you I mean things like the First Amendment are our highest values and what define us as a nation wouldn't you want companies to actually follow our deeply held moral values like as a principle i think you would and in fact um i don't know you probably know brian armstrong at coinbase he's kind of a prominent tech ceo and recently by recently i mean like two or three months ago he published a post in which he basically said like you know we're going to run this company in the spirit of first amendment and freedom even though it doesn't apply to us that that is a value of our nation and we're just going to do it. So I, I, what's wrong with that? Again, I, I, don't, I think the private thing to me is a little bit of a, of a dodge, well, I think. Well, but, but I mean, that's the actual – I don't think it's a dodge because, I mean, that, that's actually what the, con the Constitution very clearly limits it to government action. Uh, I understand – and additionally, as a company, they, they have their own – rights, the companies have their own ability under the First Amendment to curate content. I mean, we, we have, we, we've had the Supreme Court saying that you can't pass a law saying that a newspaper must publish opposing letters to the editor. Um, we, I, I, and I, I think that's in the spirit of the First Amendment also. We've, I, I mean, we, the experience on different platforms is informed by and shaped by its content moderation it's not the it, it it's i mean the go, going on certain platforms is a very different experience that's part of the overall product that you're getting from these companies and i think that um we say okay well let's live within the spirit of the first amendment there's a lot of stuff that is first amendment protected that i don't think all that many people would say, you know, I want that to be equally displayed just sort of chronologically with all the other content. It would make social media uh, not terribly usable. So I, I, I totally get the idea. But when it comes down in practice, you say, OK, how do we start applying that? And it's like, OK, well, what about spam? What about what? What if it's like for every post, it's flooded with like. All, all of this horrific content that might be constitutionally protected? Are you saying that the platform can't use an algorithm that basically says, okay, well, let's maybe move stuff up that someone might want to see? That That's where it just gets really tricky. And that's why I do think that the First Amendment applying to the government is a feature and not a bug. I mean, the, the, there, I, I don't want to I don't want to understate the consequences of have being kicked off of a platform. I mean, your livelihood could be destroyed. A lot of people's have, uh, but there is a difference because no matter how powerful Mark Zuckerberg is, he cannot put you in prison. Uh, he cannot deprive you of your actual ability to live in a free society. The government can do that. And my concern is that, we get all of this conflated and you have legislators, you have governors proposing all of these restrictions on speech that actually get less opposition and people are less worked up about these actual proposed speech restrictions than what Facebook and Twitter are doing. I mean, I'll give an example. I was 
probably a, a few months ago. I wrote pieces. I got far too involved in a Washington state legislative proposal that Governor Inslee was championing that would have uh, made it a gross misdemeanor punishable by up to 364 days in jail for a politician or a political candidate to say false information about election administration. That is the type of thing that terrifies me. Because the and I understand why he did it. it he announced it on the on January sixth, twenty twenty one, or twenty twenty two on the one year anniversary. Uh, I understand what his motivation was, and they tried to put in some constitutional safeguards. But the idea that we would be passing a law that's threatening political candidates with jail for talking about election administration, like that's what you see in some other countries that we're trying to avoid. And that when, when you when you look at the scope of what I'm concerned about, I am far more concerned about normalizing that sort of thing than saying, you know, whether Twitter is fairly enforcing its content policies. Because again, people going to jail, that concerns me a lot more. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that obviously makes sense. Like, what controls men with guns obviously takes priority over everything else. But I just find it odd. And, you know, this is like, you know, post bong rip type legal theory here. But it just, it just seems odd to me that we've gone to a point where it's actually private civil society. And, and for that matter, typically younger people, <clears throat> you know, woke people who are kind of the ones who are most actively engaged in censorship, right? Like, back in the day, right, when Lenny Bruce, who for the kids in the room was this sort of shocking comedian in the sixties and seventies would get up and do a, a number in New York, like literal cops would be dragging him off the stage and booking him into jail on obscenity charges. And now like the government and like the stodgy people on the Supreme court are actually the most open-minded people. And it's whoever's going to be yelling at the all hands today. I think talking about Elon, who's going to try to get Elon and his free speech principles off of Twitter. It's just, it's, it's an, it, I don't know. I just find it really strange. <laughs> um, well, so, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a difference between, and I think it's a blurry line, but I think there's a difference between criticism and censorship. I mean, I think that if, you have an idea and you put it out there. It, I, I think it's fair for it to be open to criticism. I don't, what I don't like is, uh, and a lot of people differ with me on this, but pe people going to speak at universities and getting shouted down. Um, I, I think protest is great. That's what universities are all about. Uh, but I don't, but I think that uh, letting people speak is really important. Um, when you don't let people speak that and you're actually like physically preventing them from speaking that that's obviously a, a bigger issue. Um, but, but I, I, so, so, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot obviously that could probably go on for another few hours. <laughs> yes. discussing those issues. Um, you know, and we, and we don't, we unfortunately don't have more, uh, two hours. We did start a little late, but we are coming up a little bit on time. I also want to be respectful of Jeff's time. I don't know if you have a, a 5.30 hard stop, uh, on your side. Um, do you, Jeff? Or can, can we run over no. a few minutes? Yeah, no? we, okay. yeah, we can do a few minutes. Okay. Um, you know, I think, um, so, you know, I'm associated with Lincoln Network, like I mentioned, and I think, 
there's a new raft of scholars, and I think some of them might actually be in the call, if I'm not mistaken. But um, let me just say this. Um, you can... You can ask questions. It's funny that nobody's actually people typically spontaneously queue up to ask questions. People, if if you don't mind, Jeff, you can all, you can take some questions uh, from from listeners. Did I do something stupid and like misconfigure the room to not allow questions? Hold on, let me take a look. I, I might have done that. It's in, it's entirely possible. Uh, allow participants to call in. Yeah, no, a- anyone can call in. So yeah, if you've got any um, if you've got any questions. Uh, you, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I tend to avoid controversial issues, so. Okay, well, you know, <laughs> well, if anyone gets out of hand, I can always, you know, pull the pull them off. Uh, that's fine. There's yeah. a lot of good, Colin has very nice uh, conversation control tools, so don't don't yeah. worry about that. Um, you know, I'm actually a host, so I'm not sure where in the UI you would actually ask a question, but I assume there's like a raise your hand thing on the right somewhere. So if anyone wants to ask Jeff a question, you've got one of the preeminent scholars of Section 230 and free speech right here <laughs> so the time to ask him a question if ne- is is um is now um let me you know what and if nobody else comes and asks you questions i'm gonna ask you questions about your book because i finished it last night and i very much liked it um so you know what do you think here's a random curveball question because i've had this conversation in the context not so much of like dc policy wonks but more just like tech geeks and mm-hmm. When, you know, it's like a joke. I don't know how much you follow like the whole crypto web three thing, but like web three fixes this, right? It's kind of this refrain that is said ironically, but is meant unironically. And what I mean by that is that like, you know, pseudo, you know, pseudonymity or, or anonymity, depending how you look at it on web three is kind of baked into it, right? Cause your identifier is this thing called a wallet, which for those that isn't familiar, it's basically just an address kind of like a, like, like an IP address in the regular web, but you know, you're not, unless you associate that address to like an actual bank thing, like Coinbase, there's no real identity assigned to it and you can do whatever. Right. And in some sense, you know, if you talk to people and I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth, he's been public about this. Somebody like Balaji, who's a, you know, he's a big crypto proponent. He would say, Oh, well in the future, you're just going to have different siloed personas. There's going to be like online shit, shit poster. You who says outrageous things. There's professional you who like holds down gainful employment. There's financial you, and you're just going to have these siloed existences and it'll resolve itself with technology rather than law. I think you would probably disagree with that statement. In fact, you would say technology is not the solution and actual like law and civil society is, is the real solution. So I, I think the answer is all of it is part of a solution that's not going to be perfect. So I, I think that we have to rely both on law and technology. So in the book, I focus a chapter on poor and onion routing and how it was developed actually by the Naval Research Labs and how it has been used. And that I view as really a supplement to the legal protections for anonymity. And none of them are perfect. Uh, There are ways to be, and in part, it's because people are not perfect. So a lot of the, no matter what technological protections that you have, if you're speaking anonymously or pseudonymously, you can think that you're staying anonymous or pseudonymous, but you're also possibly giving enough hints here and there that you don't even put together that someone who's uh, paying attention can can figure out who you are. I give some examples in the book about that. So yeah, I mean, I think technology helps, but it's only as good as the people who are using it. Right. Um, 
Right. I, you know, I'm, I'm probably somewhere in between the anti-tech and tech position in that I think, I think Balaji is, is right in that those tools should be developed. But I think technologists always, always try to fix social problems with, with technological solutions. There's definitely a sort of solutionism to things. And it's, it's funny, if, if you spend as, as a long time in startups like I have, you realize that in the case of a lot of broken startups, and every, every startup is broken in some way or another, it's never a technical problem, usually. I mean, it's, it's rare for you to be so at the cutting edge that, like, the tech is really what's holding you back. It's almost always a human problem internally around something else. And, yeah. the, and the way you fix a startup is actually not building this new thing that you think is going to save the company. It's actually fixing the underlying problem. That means that you're working on the wrong thing, which, yeah, is, a man, which is a management problem. Um, so it, it's funny that, the, again, the techies tend to default to tech solutions. But I think you know, the more either old or cynical among us would look at it and say, well, even, even the tech would tell you that <laughs> – there's, there's something else going on, but you know, but that's a deeper issue, right? That's hard to solve. How do you, how do you develop a polity, right? How do you develop a sense of common culture, a common narrative? I mean, one of the problems is that the internet is a solvent to all these things. It it just it just kills and dissolves trust, consensus, all the rest of it, and that that's the harder problem that you can't just fix with like some new Web three scheme, at least in, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that law also is not going to fix everything i think that uh certain things need to be restricted more so things like the law enforcement being able to use facial recognition that's gathered from social media companies that that's something that i think the law needs to really take a look at and say okay well the fourth amendment's not going to be a big help for this so Right. Um, how, how do we do we want to do this as a society? Do we want to compromise anonymity in this way or do we want to protect it? And I, I think those are those are kind of the some local governments have already had that conversation and said, yeah, we do. And they banned the law enforcement from using it. And I think that uh, we, we need to more broadly look at that sort of thing or the fact that any data broker can sell your precise geolocation points over large periods of time and they're pretty much unregulated <laughs> and right. that those are the sorts of things that i think law could at least help out with. right okay um you know we've, we actually do have a caller uh shauna so let me let me invite shauna up shauna are you are you there Yes, I am. Thank you. Happy Passover, by the way, Antonio. Oh, thank you. That's right. It is. It is coming soon. Thank you, Shana. <laughs> yes. Um, question that's slightly off topic, but I think it, there are parallels, especially as you talk about the social element of this. So I just want to preface that of my question. Um, and this comes from my own seasonal life. So I'm a mom. My my kids are still fairly young at this point. Um, but for me, when I think about myself and my behavior online, it's really easy for me to regulate. Um, I just I don't have that conflict. And and thankfully, I am with my with my job. I feel like I can be pretty open with my activities, too. But I do want protections, of course, too. That's I am. I have a lot of libertarian viewpoints on that. But I, I always say I have libertarian viewpoints, dot, dot, dot but now I'm also a parent. And so I think a lot about how I want my children to engage with not the internet in parentheses, but social media. And so I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Again, not legal barriers, but social 
um, discussion and how to basically how to raise these children, uh, one, not to be asshats themselves, but two, how to have healthy interactions online at an older age. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's something I have been grappling with. I have an eight-year-old daughter and my wife and I have, we, we actually at first were like, okay, well, we'll only give her books until she's 18 years old, which was not realistic, particularly um, over the past few years when her school went onto her iPad and she's been on her iPad since. And um, I, I think that it actually has been a really great learning experience for her in terms of the opportunities that are available um, that would not be sort of in the pre-iPad era. But I'll say that uh, I, I think ultimately a lot of it comes down to the parents being plugged in and knowing what is going on without also being too hovering. Um, and I think it varies by the age. Um, at eight years old, my tolerance for um, for things like open chat functions on apps is zero. Uh, she there there's not she she has apps that I mean there are a lot of apps that it really is weird. There was like a game involving animals uh, that all of a sudden she her friends had played she had downloaded it and all of a sudden i so i always look at the apps and immediately that we start getting these messages from adults on it and i'm like why why is this animal game sending messages so uh, it didn't even give me the option for disabling the chat so that app is no longer there um when she gets older i think that i i don't think it would be realistic to say you can't have any contact with people but it really comes down to um, being there, be, knowing what's going on and really teaching the right values. And even that's not foolproof. I mean, there's a lot of scary stuff, but I think there are ways to, um, to, to at least limit potential harms, but it really does. I, I, I worry I have some friends who kind of think that the Apple settings will parent for them. I'm like, no, you're, you really need to be more involved and understand what your kid is doing on that iPad for hours at a time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. Like, I tend to be kind of a crypto libertarian pro 1A sort of guy. And then I go and read, like, the latest child grooming sexual assault material type ring broken up by the FBI story. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe the CCP isn't that wrong about all this, maybe. But obviously, I'm joking and right. being somewhat hyperbolic. But it's kind of like, well, actually, there are bad people in the world, and they need to be stopped somehow. Um, okay, well, thanks, Shauna, for your question. I see there's another, unless you had another follow-up question, I, I see Kamal wants to ask a question as well. No, thank you out. both. No, okay. thank you. Thank you, Shauna. Let me make next caller. Kamal, you are, oh, let's see, you are up next. Hey, Jeff, I have a question about the uh, fake accounts. So there are some uh, legislations uh, that are advocating for companies to kill mass fake accounts to avoid AI-enabled influence on campaigns. What's your opinion on that? 
So I'm not sure which legislation you're talking about. There's a there there is a proposal to require real name registration and part of the uh, for so, for large social media companies and part of the justification for that is to combat fake accounts. Uh, that concerns me greatly. I also think it would be unconstitutional if it was ever passed because it's saying you must register your real name to use um, any any large social media site and uh, even in much more limited types of uh, state laws, the courts have struck that down as a First Amendment violation. Um, and I think there's good reason for that. Um, in term, I, I think too often anonymity is conflated with fraud. Uh, and I mean, even the, the sites like Twitter and Reddit that allow pseudonymity, they all prohibit fraudulent accounts uh, that you can't pretend to be someone who you are not. Uh, no, the no large platform is saying, hey, we welcome you to impersonate your neighbor. Uh, they're just saying you don't have to use your real name. Um, so I, I don't, unfortunately, I, and, and I mean, companies also have ways of at least sort of detecting bots in a lot of circumstances and they take down those accounts. Um, anything to combat that by requiring real name registration I think would be very dangerous. How about just allowing people to create less than five accounts that are anonymous? And then if you create more than five, then that's considered abuse. Uh, I think that's really something for the platforms to, uh, to set as their own policies. I, I, I just don't think that, there's a legitimate reason for the government to step in and start setting user account policies for how people can speak on social media. I mean, they, that, I mean, I think that companies are free to make those policies and I think that often they, they should take those sorts of steps. But I, I, I get very concerned when it's the government doing that. But wouldn't government be concerned about AI-enabled influence campaigns that are largely driven by mass fake accounts? Well, so they are. And there's a, I, when I look at a government speech restriction, I don't just look at what the legitimate concerns driving them are, because they're all, I, they're often are. I mean, in all of these proposals that I'm very opposed to, it's hard to really address them because the concerns they have are legitimate. So things like misinformation that causes people to uh, make bad health decisions or to storm the Capitol. I mean, I agree with that being a problem. What I think about is not just how it could be used correctly, but I think about how any of those things could be abused by someone who has the power to use them to their advantage in a nefarious way. And so I think that uh, the government, let, let's say that the, they had the power to set regulations as to you know how many accounts someone could have, um, would they enforce it against a social media company where the users tend to be critical of that administration? How, who, who brings the enforcement actions? How do they sue? I, what size companies is it enforced against? And why is the government 
making these decisions as to um, what speech a platform should be allowing both to transmit on the platform and for its users to receive. Um, I, I just think that sort of thing, while very well-intentioned and it could be used very well, I think it's just far too open for abuse from a politician who wants to suppress uh, criticism. Great. Thank you so much. That helped a lot. Yeah, I think one, one thing, thank you, Kamal. I'm going to have a Porv up next. You know, one thing I think we often forget is like, you should, you should always design law and policy such that your worst political enemy will implement it, right? Like that, yeah. <laughs> that's sort of the thought experiment you should do. And I think we've kind of lost that. We don't actually think that way anymore for some reason. Well, well, I, I mean, it, it's really interesting because the people who are proposing these misinformation restrictions are, are largely on the left. And I, I'm saying this not in my capacity as a Naval Academy professor <laughs> or DOD employee, but I, I, I note this and then you look at, you know, do they not realize that the other side had been criticizing fake news for years? And do they possibly see how <laughs> if you give the government the ability to designate and punish misinformation, how the other side might be able to use it? And when I, I pointed out, and I mean, I was actually on a panel with someone who was proposing one of these misinformation regulations, and they said, well, it would pass when Joe Biden is president. So that's okay. I'm thinking, okay, well, you, you know, he's not going to be president for life. Like, <laughs> I mean, right. there, there's going to be someone else. And how might that other person use it? And it's just baffling that, uh, that people are so short sighted that they think, oh, well, as long as the people who I'm in power or who are in power right now are people I agree with, let's give the government the ability to censor. And I, 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 I amazed that that keeps coming up. Oh, and that's, and that's been the tone forever. Like I, I interviewed uh, Zeynep uh, Tufeki, who you probably know for a while ago. And she mentioned speaking to a lot of the democratic operatives in like 2012 and like, Oh yeah, this digital stuff is amazing. We're all, it's only going to ever benefit us. The Republicans are too stupid to use it. And then 2016 rolls around and suddenly they're singing a very different tune, but that's, yeah. that's very typical. Anyhow, I, I brought up Apoorva. I think she has a question. Welcome Apoorva. I think we've met before. Approve, are you still there? Yep, I'm still here. Sorry. Um, thanks for uh, inviting me, Antonio. Um, Jeff, I joined this uh, um, chat much later, um, so I don't know if you already addressed this. But um, I love when I when policy people talk, it's really good to understand if what's the number one burning issue for you right now that if you had a magic wand to wave over and fix, if there's anything that the public's not paying attention to something that's worth sort of like people to pay attention to. If there's one thing like that, that you'd like to get people's attention towards, what would that be? Um, yeah, so th that's a great question. And I think the one thing would be what I see is really a decline in the appreciation for the First Amendment. And I'm talking about like the actual First Amendment that says the government can't censor people, that the courts can't impose devastating defamation judgments on people who criticize public officials, that sort of thing. It, that Those values, I think, on all sides of the political spectrum are being overlooked and minimized. And the, I think all the debate about 
all the these variety of things with the platforms and what they can do is I, there's so many troubling things that I mean I, I'll point to one one issue that illustrates this is um, in 1964 the most important defamation related court case was issued uh, called New York Times versus Sullivan, which said that public officials and then later public figures have to demonstrate what's known as actual malice to sue for defamation, which is a really, really high bar. Um, and this has been, and I, I was a lawyer for media companies, so I can say this is vital for the ability of all sorts of news outlets and individuals to write about public figures or government officials without fearing being sued out of existence. Um, you have um, had in recent years, both uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas suggest that we need to revisit uh, New York Times versus Sullivan uh, for various reasons, uh, concerns about the media, concerns about fairness. Uh, but you've also had, um, I had a few months ago on Twitter, a fairly heated and I'd say not terribly informed debate with the Democrats' top uh, elections lawyer who just casually suggested, let's get rid of New York Times for Sullivan. I asked him, why are you saying that? And he said, well, you don't care about voting rights, which didn't totally make sense to me. But it was disturbing that he was throwing around like, oh, let's just get rid of this vital First Amendment protection. Um, he was doing it to make a point about something, but the fact that we have so many, and then we have all these proposals to cut down on, to allow the government to regulate speech, and as important as the issues are about what platforms do, and I've written now two books on it, so I agree that it's important, what's far more important is that we keep the government out of this. And um, I'm really, really concerned that when I step back, I see so little concern uh, about uh, the government getting involved. And you look, I mean, you just look at Russia and you see what they're doing with putting with uh, saying, you know, you go to prison for 15 years if you call if you call what's happening in Ukraine a war. Um, obviously, we're not anywhere near there, but. Uh, people say, don't worry about slippery slopes. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I worry about slippery slopes. <laughs> I worry about it quite a bit. And uh, I, I really hope we can refocus the debate on what I see as the most important free speech protection. I mean, one, one counter argument to that, Jeff, like, you know, I, I've also probably spent a lot less time on the Hill than you have. But, you know, you talk to some of these politicians and their political staff. And there's an immense amount of suspicion towards the private sector, more so than government, right? Government, and, and I think this is just like a framing issue, and it's just a bias, but they, they feel that government is in some sense accountable in that, you know, there's a Congress and an executive and a judiciary, there's a whole mechanism of like popular sovereignty there, which to one degree or another kind of works, while there is, you know, very little accountability other than to share shareholders inside Twitter or Facebook. So in some sense, I think that's part of the reason why they fear the government less, because at least in a democratic society, it's not as imposing as, you know, F Facebook's like content review board, say. Again, when Facebook's content review board starts sentencing you to prison, then I'm on board. Uh, but <laughs> I, that's not, 
I, I, re- I, I do not. I, I've heard that and I understand where they're coming from. Uh, I fundamentally disagree. And I, I think that uh, and it's not just, I mean, I'm not this ardent sort of uh, believer in carefree markets here. I, I'm concerned with people going to prison for speech. But, uh, but, Je- but, but Jeff, I mean, tweet, tweets are violence. And if, you, if your account gets suspended, it's as if you went to the gulag. You know, I used to joke that like when my book came out, people thought like Facebook would send assassins after me or something. I said, no, 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 no you don't understand. For Facebook, they would simply delete my Facebook account and consider that tant- tantamount to death. That is yeah. the equivalent of getting whacked by Putin, right? They yeah. would literally just delete your Facebook account. And it seems like we've gotten to that, <laughs> yeah. to that yeah. level. So, Purva, did you have any other questions or any, anything else to follow up on? If not, I think I'm, it might be a good time to wrap up. Uh, no, thanks. Thanks okay. for the answer, Jeff. Sure. And, well, thanks, Jeff, for, for coming on the show. It's funny. I can't believe that an hour has flown by that quickly. It yeah, seems, this fun. Yeah, I know. This is a lot of fun. Um, thanks again for being a super informed voice on all this. I have to say, I, I think every voice in this debate, A, tends to be underinformed about, like, legal precedent, in my opinion, uh, and, and, and also then to tend to be deeply ideological about it. But I think your writing is the opposite. It's deeply informed by legal precedents. Your book, uh, The United States of Anonymity, by the way, is just chock full of all these examples. Some, so even I, like niche stuff that I'd never heard of, like the Yahoo Finance stuff. Um, and so thanks for being a, a, reasonable, a reasonable voice in this privacy debate. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks, everyone. Pull, pull request subscribers. Um, as usual, this will go out soon and it also will go streaming. Jeff, I mean, FYI, if you care, it'll be syndicated out to all the major podcasting platforms, Apple, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, etc. So it can also be listened to that way. What you see here is just like the live studio audience. I don't know if you've ever used Colin before, but then, of course, it gets syndicated and heard asynchronously a lot more than than the people in this in this chat. So. Um, but thanks, thanks for making time, Jeff and everyone go out and, and buy his book, either the current one about anonymity or the previous one about section 230 that I think is like the definitive book on, on that very, very important law. Um, thanks again, Jeff and see everyone later. Bye. Thanks. Yeah. Bye.